Hey, let's start the show. It's April 24th, 2014. Welcome to This Is Only a Test, the official podcast of Tested.com. Hi there, it's Norm. Uh, I'm hosting this week. I'm joined by Jeremy Williams. Hi. Will is out. I'm getting straight to it. None of this dilly-dally messing up the intro business. Uh, It's just us in the office this week. Uh, Joey and Will are both out today, and hopefully I'm doing this right. I got the YouTube stream going, so if you're watching it, that means I did that right. (laughs) Yeah. If you could hear the audio... On the on the RSS feed, that means I did that right. Yep. Otherwise, you and I are wasting an hour here. Yeah, an hour that we could be spending coptering or podcasting correctly, or or podcasting correctly. I do have show notes. Uh, Will podcasted last week with Dave Snyder, who launched his Kickstarter project. Uh, they launched Webhook. It's a new CMS, um, WordPress like alternative, but the way they're approaching. Uh, CMS, they're rendering web pages not in real time, not as you request the page, but beforehand. So it's it's uh, less computationally intensive on the server side. Mm. Um, and it's something interesting. You should check out uh, their Kickstarter. Uh, I think the website is webhook.com, but I'm not 100% sure. It is webhook.com. Cool. Um, and I think as of today, they are uh, at least three quarters of their way to their goal with uh, 27 days ago. So very cool. Um, and they've been working out of our office for uh, the past six months or past, no, four months. So it's been interesting to see that development happen. Um, like I said, I wasn't here last week. I was at WonderCon for most of last week. Uh, had a ball of a time. Uh, if you just watch our podcast, just listen to our podcast, or just watch our videos, uh, go check out the site and check out the cosplay gallery. It's something I'm very proud of every single year at these comic book conventions. You've been to WonderCon. I've, I've been to WonderCon back when it was at San Francisco. Yeah. Uh, it was. It's run by the same organization that hosts Comic-Con, mm. which is the biggest uh, international comic book convention that's the one in san diego every july the one that you know two hundred thousand people flock to san diego uh, over five days uh, wednesday night included through sunday and all the hotels are booked and it's very difficult to get tickets and i've been to comic-con this will be my 10th year at comic-con and at wondercon i think this was probably my 12th year at wondercon is it just as difficult to get tickets to wondercon no much easier where is it it's in, in anaheim so WonderCon used to be the Northern California comic book convention it, um, it was San Francisco. And so we had it at the Moscone Center where like, GDC is hosted. And uh, when the new Moscone uh, West Convention Center opened, mm-hmm. that was, that's the one that um, like the Apple keynotes are now given in. Uh, I guess that in the Yerba Buena Center. Uh, WonderCon had its first, had, had moved in that ro- uh, that hall in that convention center, but it was too big for WonderCon because it was before the giant boom of comic movies. I remember going to that convention center and getting an autograph from Christian Bale. It's the movies that pushed it? 
movies absolutely that's interesting yes i mean comic book movies uh turn comic book conventions into uh places of uh, media destinations hmm. uh for things that not not even comic book movies for tv shows um for thrillers genre f- movies and it's it's all like it's weird uh commercialized event now but they decided to move comic con or WonderCon to, to anaheim because it was easier to get hotels there. The hotel situation in downtown San Francisco, not so great. Um, and they want, kind of want to move closer to L.A., uh, where a lot of production companies are, so it'd be easy for them to promote their their movies and their TV shows there. And it's it's gotten pretty big. So Saturday sold out this year. Uh, it was Friday, Saturday, Sunday. Friday and Sunday, you could still buy tickets on site, which you couldn't do at something like a Comic-Con. And it's, it's a fun event. It's It's not as packed as a Comic-Con, like you can breathe. It feels um, there's still enough to see, and there are some interesting panels. That yeah. sounds good. Yeah, and of course, a ton of great cosplayers. Fantastic cosplay. Um, really really cool costumes and creative costumes. So check that out. It's on the site. Uh, next week, I might be doing a, a sit-down where I, I talk about the photography process and what equipment I brought and go through some of the photos and talk through my editing process. Oh, there it goes. And I am. I should probably mute that. How's Joey telling me? Do I got it? Do I got it? I do. <laughs> yep. This is interesting radio, as Will would say. Um, so uh, while I was out, out uh, Will and Dave did a podcast. I'm actually looking over their uh, listener's choice podcast notes because I haven't listened to it yet to see what they talked about. Apparently, they want to talk about Bitcoin. Were you here when we talked about our, our, our Bitcoin adventures? I know you own a Bitcoin, or at yeah. least w- part of one. Yes, and uh, several people at WonderCon asked me about that Bitcoin Oh, cool! Uh, in particular. Like, do you still have it? And I showed them my wallet, yeah. hiding hiding the, the code. Do people recognize you? I mean, do they read your name tag and say, oh, I, I listened to your show? A uh, few people here and there. And, and yeah, a few people here and there are like, oh, I, I, enjoy, I enjoy your show. And That's cool. The funniest thing is they call it a show. Mm-hmm. I, I don't know what that means. Yeah, because if you think it used of, to be on TV, <laughs> exactly, and now it's on the internet. No, it's, it never, never was on TV. Thank goodness. Not your show, but the the term show. Right, right, yeah, yeah right. But when you think of a show on TV, you must say, "Oh, I love your show." Like, "Oh, I love MythBusters," or "I love right. Dirty Jobs," right? I love you on on that one show. Yeah. We don't do a single show. <laughs> I know. Like, what are you talking about? I, I and. That is the lexicon now. Yeah. When when people watch YouTube channels, and a lot of people love, I mean, I love watching YouTube channels, but I don't say, oh, I love your channel. Like, I, I would say, I love your channel. Mm-hmm. Like, I love the spectrum of things. Like, Felicia Day, I love Geek and Sundry. Or, Felicia Day, I love the flog, which is, that's a show. But when people say, oh, I love your show, and that's just the thing they say, like, I'm like okay, do you mean the untitled, still untitled podcast? Do you mean this is only a test? I can't gauge what that means. Yeah. Um, but some people are really nice and they say, oh, I, I love that video you did about the Bitcoin. I like the video you did with the, the Han Solo blaster. But yeah, people did ask about the Bitcoin and I had to show them, yep, I got the refund in, in terms of the, actu- the one Bitcoin, 0.99 Bitcoin coming back to me. But when we bought that Bitcoin in Austin, and yes, I still owe Will um, $405. Wait, did you sell it or you're buying him out? I'm buying him out. Okay. He will wants his money. Okay. And uh, I have not. I have yet to give him cash uh, for uh, mm-hmm. multiple reasons. One, because I have not received my tax refund yet. Check yet. <laughs> so I don't have the cash to give him. Two, because I haven't had time to go to an ATM to take out $405 to give to Will. In 20s. In 20s. So wait a minute. And 
may I guess, Bitcoin value is going down? Bitcoin values are going down, but I, I'm, it's like, it's a stock, <laughs> and I, we do not give stock advice here, and I've committed to oh, it's just interesting that, this that, Bitcoin. that you're waiting to pay Will while the stock drops. Oh, no, that's, that's, those things are separate, though. Like, I'm going to pay Will I off see. the cash real American dollars. Yeah. Like, at it, what, but at what, uh, what at exchange what, rate? It, it, that that doesn't matter. I'm not going to wait till Bitcoin is more than the original six hundred dollars that we bought, no, that, paid for it. No, no, no. Um, but I've also not given Will the four hundred five dollars because I think he takes too much satisfaction in giving me shit about the fact that I give, haven't oh, given. Oh, you're money. doing him a favor by not I'm giving. Him doing money. him a favor so he can still hold on to the "Where's my money, Chan?" thing. Because if kind. I if I gave him the money, he wouldn't be. Able, no, he'd still say it. Yeah, it's a whole about it. Uh, Bitcoin right now, it, as of today, oh, it's gone up. According to whom? According to uh, Bitstamp. Okay. Uh, I guess what's an exchange rate? Um, it's it's the ZenBlock. Oh no, ZenBlock uh, uh, app is uh, four hundred eighty-seven dollars. So it's gone down about one hundred thirty dollars. Yeah, good. Uh, but it's gone up about I mean, fifty dollars since I last checked. <laughs> since I checked like two days ago. Not good, but but it's, good, it's good for Will's buyout in your case. It you, is. You owe him less money. Yes, it, it is volatile. Uh, I'm I'm still looking for an out. <laughs> like I I haven't, I haven't explored my options. I just wait till it goes up over a thousand again. Yeah, Trade that's got to happen. Oh, it will happen. It will happen, right? Absolutely. It's like Google stock, which split and is now you know back at hovering around five hundred, but. It's, going up yep. um or also apple apple's gonna split their stock seven ways yep it'll be cheap it'll be apple stocks will be cheap you'll have more of it if you already own it that's right seven times yes but of course it, the value of it going up and down is, is gonna be much lower um so anyway they uh people i guess they talked about uh bitcoin uh last week i'm, I'm going over the notes um I really hope they did talk about Windows 8.1 as well, Windows Phone 8.1, because it's something... God, there are a lot of topics. Anyway, we have our own list of topics to talk about, so let's jump into it. Um, the day before I flew down to WonderCon, I went to the Project Aura uh, Developers Conference, the first Project Aura Developers Conference. What's Project Aura? So this is a, a Google initiative uh, as a part of... Uh, when Google bought Motorola, they bought the advanced... Uh, technologies and projects division, ATAP. I'm not exactly sure that's what it stands for, but the acronym is ATAP division. And this was a R&D division of Motorola that um, was run by ex-DARPA uh, researchers. Um, and they uh, were tasked by Motorola to explore new ways of designing cell phones. And so one thing they had been working on, the most high-profile thing they've been working on, is something called Project Aura. So Google has divested itself of Motorola. They are selling Motorola off, uh, Motorola Mobility off to Lenovo, at least the manufacturing and the phone lines, but they are keeping the patents, which a lot of people say that's why Google bought Motorola in the first place, to strengthen that patent portfolio. But also, they are keeping the ATAP division, ATAP, including Project Aura. So uh, last year... Uh, there was a very popular video that went viral on YouTube, uh, Phone Blocks. It was, uh, I'm trying to, let me, let me uh, recall the name of the person who created that video. Uh, a Dutch designer, Dave Hawkins, um, and he, he uh, produced this uh, video that's like a two and a half minute long video that has 20 million views, kind of like 
um, proposing the idea of what if smartphones could have interchangeable parts? What if you could replace, instead of buying a new phone that has a faster processor or buying a new phone that has a bigger screen or mm-hmm. high-resolution screen, you could just swap out the screen. Like little tiny PCs. Right, exactly. Uh, it's an idea that, that people responded really well to and people thought was a, a fantastic idea because they were maybe sick of every year and a half spending another $200, $300, and then extending their contract, or another, in some cases, $500 to buy a new phone in, pl- in places where you, there, there aren't subsidies. Um, but this YouTube video was not done by not Motorola. done by Motorola or okay. Google. And it turned out that Google, at the same time, had been working on this Project Aura, uh-huh. and they accelerated uh, the announcement to... Uh, follow this video to, oh, to kind of piggyback on the success of this video. So okay. the guy Dave Dave Hawkins was actually Dave Hackens H A K K E N S. I'm not sure how you pronounce that. He was actually at the conference as well. Hmm. Um, kind of like a, uh, a uh, I'm not sure he's actually working on it, but just kind of a, a, a good thing. Exactly. Yeah. So um, Project Era was announced. Ara Era. I think it's Ara. Project Ara was announced, and there. There were no working, working prototypes, nothing really talked about it. People got really excited that Google was going to put some effort behind this. And uh, last week, they had the first developers conference where they brought in hardware partners and developers to learn about the, uh, the, the concepts. And they released uh, what they call an MDK. Um, let me... Uh, and the MDK is stands for the Module Developers Kit, so it's all the hardware specs, um, so that the partners can develop their own modules and build the hardware that would be compatible with this design. Interesting. So there's standardized connectors. Yes. And some sort of uh, SDK that allows you to make your own modules to plug into a phone. So uh, there are a couple, a couple things interesting about the whole project as a whole. One, that it is a, uh, as a part of this ATAP project, it has a two-year lifespan. Um, from the moment the project was conceived and approved by Google and given funding, and they haven't said how much money they've put into it, but I think it's considerable, assuming they're f- uh, the DARPA model. DARPA model has always been high risk and uh, lots of failures, but p- high potential reward with a lot of funding. Google has that money. Uh, they put three people on it full-time only on this Project R idea. And and then they, uh, because it's a two-year project, they can pull um, experts and other engineers and technologists from other parts of Google to work on it and not commit them to a long-term project and not say, you're only going to be working on this forever, but we, you, we want you as a consultant, we can hire at firms. And the idea is that within two years, that is only they're given that two-year time to um, bring a proof of concept that is viable in market. Uh, whether or not that's actually going to sell anything, they don't really care, but they'll have the patents from it and they'll have the lessons they learn from it may be applied elsewhere. Yeah. Um, but it's like a, it's, it's like a very, like a, it's, it's like a, an exercise. Almost. So that's where we are now. We're at the end of that two years. No, so. no. Uh, we are one, one and a half, uh, one year into it. So, oh. yeah. Okay. So, uh, in terms of that timeline, they laid out the timeline, which is very, like very transparent for like this kind of concept device. Um, so in the one year time, they've done prototypes. They have one working prototype, a few working prototypes now. The first developers conference was last week. They will have two more developers conferences: one in July um, for designers and for the physical design, mm-hmm. and then one in the fall for uh, another module developers conference and and really locking things down with uh, first pre production prototypes to be released uh, to developers in December timeframe, and then. Uh, hopefully uh, by next April. That's when the people working on it now, that's it. They're done. 
they will they will no longer be working on it and it will go either google will either do something with it or they won't uh, but they're hoping they will so um how does it work right like how can a phone be modular um well one it runs android a, a, a forked version of Android, so it's not going to run stock Android. And Android right now, you can plug in accessories to it. For example, like an Android phone, you can buy an adapter, like a USB adapter, and plug in a USB gamepad. So it has some sort of like USB plug-and-play. You can plug a mouse in, you can plug a keyboard in. That's why like on an Android tablet, you can plug a mouse in and you get a cursor. Uh, that's why there was the, the whole... Uh, the Android convertibles, right? Those Android fake notebooks mm-hmm. that were uh, released a couple years ago. But Android currently does not have support for um, a, a, a model where you can swap out uh, Real core low, components. Low-level stuff, yeah. Exactly. Um, so they're building that stuff in. And there is a technology called Unipro, a standard called Unipro, that was developed by... I wish I had all these things out here. Um, Unipro, uh, it's called, it's, it stands for Unipri- Unified Protocol... It's a high-speed interface technology. So that's the the connect the uh, the bus that the, the standard for how th- how these components will connect, uh, the la- and the language that they'll speak to each other in. And they're taking that standard, which has been in development for years, uh, outside of Google from this consortium um, mm-hmm. that is uh, the MIPI Alliance, um, hmm. and they're using that as the connection method. So it's high speed. High band, like lots of bandwidth, um, and allows for power. And they're developing their own implementation of it, which is its ten-pin connector, ten-pin uh, capacitive connector. So there's, it's just touch. Um, and within that ten-pin connector, like you know, one is a ground, one is power, and then you have eight pins of uh, unidirectional I/O. Um, that's expandable, and, and hmm. you can have two of these 10-pin connectors yeah. for modules. So the design of the, the Project R phone, the, the core concept is something that they call uh, the endoskeleton, the endo. And uh, if you look at the, the photos, have you seen the photos yeah. of the phone? They, um, they look colorful, mm-hmm. but they look like there is this metal like f- ribbed frame. Um, they call it an endoskeleton because they think of it as a, a rib, uh, or as, a, as a spine with ribs that pop out from the side. And uh, in the MDK, in this module developer kit, they've laid out the guidelines for the different configurations for uh, endoskeletons. Mm-hmm. You can build an endo that is, you know, that's a small, a small size phone, like smaller than an iPhone that would only accommodate like eight modules or something. You can build a normal size one that would accommodate like a larger screen and a, and a phone or a, a large size one, you know, maybe even like a small tablet size. Mm-hmm. And um, in terms of the modules, uh, the things in terms of the orientation of the endoskeleton, uh, there is a front side, which is for the screen and speakers modules, for, and those are things that only fit in the front. And, and the screen is a module. Too. And the screen is a module. So there are two classes of modules. There's a uh, front module and back module. Hmm. Um, similar connectors, but front mo- hardware that goes on the front will go on the front, which is a screen, speakers, microphone. Uh, maybe a camera, so a speaker module could be replaced with a camera module. Um, but the orientation of the back, that's where all the core stuff goes in. So in terms of the modules, um, how how many pieces of, of a phone could you, how many parts can you split a phone into is something that, that you ask. Like, can you, you know, are you going to be able to upgrade the, the memory capacity of a, f- a phone, you know, the processor of the phone, the SOC, like what things have to be tied together? And as it turns out, um, 
there's a, what the thing that makes a phone essentially a phone is the processor and the memory. And those things have to be tied together. And so the biggest module on the back of the phone is always going to be something called the application processor, the AP. And it's going to be like a two by two. Um, they're like they're, they're like unit sizes, so modules can be one by two, two by two, you know, three by one. Um, and there's a two by two module that will have the processor, the memory, and the storage, and that will run um, a micro SD and and, and uh, not not but not the SIM card because you don't technically need that. And that will run the Android and all the the low level software that mm-hmm. that runs the Unipro stuff. And then everything else is considered like a peripheral. Exactly. So extra storage can be a peripheral. Um, battery is a peripheral. Like battery is going to be a big no. module. Can I add two batteries? You could do two batteries. Uh, something to talk about is that um, because the, the spine and design of the, the physical uh, specifications for the modules are fixed, so that the unit size, one by two, yeah. like you might build a camera module that's smaller than what you need for a one by one, and you have extra volume in that module, uh-huh. right? Yep. You could fill that with battery. Oh, if I was a module maker? Yeah, if you're a module maker. Then it's like my little camera plus Ex- memory module? Plus memory, exactly. Yeah. Right. And in terms of the physical modules, what they have in ter- for the PCB is about 40% of the space left of, under, uh, underneath that uh, mm-hmm. for their electronics. Um, the other, so in terms of a one-by-one module. Um, the other space is uh, for the contact points. Um, the other technology that's really interesting is they're using something called um, uh, permanent electromagnets. Um, I want to say it's that's what it's called. It's the idea is that uh, these modules they don't click in. There's no like physical latch mechanism. It's not like they're the edges are are ridged mm-hmm. so you can slide them in and it locks in with yeah. a hook or anything or a spring because uh, they want you to swap them out easily. Um, but not fall out. But not fall out. And so they're they're uh, they're fixed together with magnets. Um, but it's not just a magnet that's like on or off. Uh, is a magnet that it's an electromagnet, so uh-huh. it requires power is what keeps it on and off. But that you think about that, that's going to take power, right? Yeah. So what happens when your battery dies? Your phone exactly. falls apart. Exactly. Right. Right. So that's why they're using a technology called uh, permanent. I want to say it's called permanent electromagnets. Um, permanent. I'm doing a quick Google. You make it sound like an electromagnet that can somehow save its state. It is even after power has been removed. That is exactly what it is. Electro permanent magnet. That's interesting. Yeah, which is a new technology, and they're miniaturizing it. So right now, uh, they took apart a module for us to see, and they showed us that the coils uh, and of the the electro permanent magnet, and they're like these. This is the size of it that's right now. We want it to be like X percent smaller, so it takes less of the space. But that's the big innovation for the how the modules connect. Wow. So these are technologies that even if like Project Aura fails, the research that has been put into it may be applicable somewhere else. Would you be interested in an Aura device? I hesitate to call it a phone. It sounds like the future of the PC. Well, it doesn't need to be a phone. And well, we're, we're in a post-PC world, Jeremy. <laughs> <laughs> Clearly. Right. And uh, I mean, they're designing, like a lot of people raise interesting questions because they say, okay, this modular design, you know, if you imagine the spine, uh, the spine determines the form factor of a spine and having the front being a screen and the back being the modules mm. is what makes it a phone or something like a media player. Because you don't need to, a, the cellular, a cellular connection could be a module, a SIM card. Like you can imagine giving this to a kid and say, here's your uh, iPod touch equivalent. Right. And, and if you're good, you know, and it's affordable relatively, um, next year I'll buy you a high resolution screen so you can swap out the screen. And then when you're older, I'll get you the SIM card module. Yeah. And so you could turn it into a phone. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's what they want to do. 
Um, they're saying the build materials for the spine, the endoskeleton, when you buy the base unit before you start customizing, is going to be in the uh, under $100. And that, that essentially is the processor memory. Yeah, so the AP, the AP and the spine. Yeah. Um, and the screen. And does and it come screen. with blank modules to fill the space that you don't have modules for? I presume so. That's yeah. going to be cheap. Like, Just plastic. But the uh, the customization is a huge part of it. And the other really cool innovation that they're doing is they want to uh, encourage, uh, promote 3D printing. And so they are partners with 3D Systems. And 3D Systems is inventing for Project Aura a next-generation 3D printer <laughs> for manufacturing, for large scale, the first large-scale uh, oh, mass really? 3D printer. Oh, mass manufacturing 3D printer. Something fast. Yes. And they showed uh, the prototype for that, if it's on schedule. So they showed this, like, this roadmap of like, here are all the risks of Project Aura. Mm. And we can say as if like, these are the milestones we'll need to make for these technologies. Like Unipro needs to reach this standard by this date. Uh, we need to miniaturize the electro, uh, the permanent electromagnets by this date. This 3D printer needs to be in beta stage by this date or else we're not going to make our April 2015 date. And the 3D printing they showed, which right now they don't have photos of because it's still in the development phase, um, it's an assembly line 3D printer. Um, and the, the way they save on time, so it's, it's prints uh, acrylic, it's acrylic-based plastic, which if you go in Shapeways, um, I think it's called the high-detail plastic is their equivalent of it, uh, which means they can do um, CMYK colors and also translucent and clear. And they coat the print at the end so it doesn't, has, a, has a nice finish. So you don't see the layers. Um, so the way our 3D printers work right now, and the re- one of the reasons they're so slow, is that uh, the build platform or the print head needs to move along backwards along the axis. So it's only printing, for example, when it's drawing a line. Like if it's drawing a, a series of lines, it goes from left to right, and then it lifts up the print head. If it's a print head that's moving, and it moves all the way back and with the separate motor mm-hmm. and then draws the second line mm-hmm. right so you have to has a, there's this linear like this this cycling movement and the cycle of the going back to the original position is a huge time suck so the way that they've designed the 3d printer is that they've designed it along a racetrack where they have uh, multiple print heads for different colors different materials all along this, uh, this track and the phones are moving along an assembly line and only going in one direction. The build platforms are only moving in one direction. An assembly line 3D printer. Yes. Wow. Yeah. Which doesn't make sense for printing one thing, yeah. but when you're customizing and when the, when the system's processing, you know, hundreds of orders and you're printing hundreds of different module cases um, at once, it, the, the computer solves that problem. Yeah. So that, I thought that was really cool. So are these RF phones going to be extra thick because they have to accommodate the shell and the connector? Uh, the prototype they showed definitely looked like a bigger phone. It looked like one of those, at least the size of like a large Lumia phone, the mm-hmm. Nokia Lumia phones. Um, it was not going to be the size of an iPhone. So there's there's headroom in costs because they need you know to pay for the electro the magnets and the Unipro connectors and all that stuff. Uh, the physical costs there is the uh, um, yeah there it there are compromises to be made in terms of like. The concerns that people had about, you know, the tight design of uh, of an iPhone, it, you know, it can be that size because it's not made to be changed. Totally valid, but if you want, you know, if, if you don't care about the size of your phone, and you're okay with something that's 
you know, it's not massive. It's not like a brick. It's not like a 2002 era PDA. Um, and you want the ability to change out modules and buy only what you need right now. Uh, then that's what they're that's what they're shooting for. I, Emerging markets. Also. It is kind of exciting to think of people making the modules, mm-hmm. third parties. You yeah, know, if they, yeah, they don't have the means or knowledge to make an entire phone, but yes. they want they want phones to be able to do 3D photography, for instance. Right, right. They sell a 3D module, and then suddenly people can do 3D video. Right. For the Rift or whatever you want. You yeah. Know, something something interesting like that. That's kind of, I could see that uh, being certainly niche, if not you know wide market. I mean, there are, there are companies right now selling accessories for the iPhone that add thermal imaging to the iPhone. And it's a thermal imaging camera that plugs in, mm-hmm. and, you, and you can see them easily adapting that, just you know, downloading the, MD, uh, the MDK and figuring out the, the Unipro connector and building a module that will work with Project R. Uh, from a user's perspective, like if I had a phone that I knew, okay, today I'm going on a business trip, and I don't need to look at photos on my phone, but I want longer battery life, I could swap out to a lower-resolution screen. Because it consumes less power, or I can swap out some of these modules and put in extra battery modules yeah. for for this trip. Or normally, I want the phone to be small and f- relatively small and flush in my pocket, so I put the generic camera, the the crappy camera. But if today I'm going on a, a nice trip and I want to take better photos, yep. then I swap out and I take the bigger camera, which normally protrudes in my pocket, yep. but I would want the better photos and pop yep. that on on the, cam- yep, yep, on, the yep. on the phone. Maybe take off your USB module, put it on an extra storage module. Yeah. Because you're going to be taking raw photos or something like that. Right, right. Yeah, right. it's intriguing. Yeah. I, I, I think it's a... it's a, But the thing that surprised me most is how much this has resonated with people. How like, so? Like, how, that people like it? People love this idea. Really? And I don't know if... I, I'm, I'm sure that most people... People, love, have, people have been into customization but, for, forever. So the maybe, fact that that video got 20 million views... Mm. When I posted, uh, I, I did a write-up about it, and I posted it on our Facebook page. And our normal Facebook page, you know, it, you get 5,000 people to view a, a view an item. The Project R story got 20,000 people looking at it. Like, it, it's just something that people are interested in, whether or not it, that Google can make it happen. And it's not, it's, yeah, it's, 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 it's fascinating. It's the exact opposite of what Apple does. Yes, and may, maybe that's exactly, like, that why. Uh, but I'm not sure. Not exactly sure. So that was Project Aura. Um, it was it was a real fun developers conference to to attend and and hear some really good questions. Uh, next year, yeah, we're one year away from from this being something that that people might be able to go out and buy. Uh, speaking about their Android phones, there was an Android phone announced yesterday uh, from a company called OnePlus. Um, it's I believe a uh, Chinese company, and they uh, have this new phone called the One. So it's now two Android phones called the One, the HTC One and <laughs> That's the. So funny. And this phone is called the One Plus One. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Yep. Uh, it is a high-end Android phone, uh, basically a rebranded uh, version of this phone that's already out in China. Three hundred dollars off contract. Okay. Very high-end, 1080p LCD screen, uh, Snapdragon 801 processor, um, and. Uh, pricing is getting aggressive yep. on Android phones. I think uh, it, it's it's tough because um, the competitive advantage of Apple and the you know the way they they want to because they they technically charge seven eight hundred dollars for an iPhone. That's how much they make from carriers or people buying unsubsidized. 
But um, Tim Cook was saying in the Apple's earning call yesterday that that's what they believe is a fair price. They're charging a fair price for the quality of phone that they get. And but there is there are other companies out there on the Android market where they don't have to develop the software because Android is open, and they they're building the hardware and they have you know in this case a phone that was already pre-designed and the hardware was, it was easy you know they have, they they were tapped into those, those that supply chain. Um, and they can afford to sell a phone just to get some market share for three hundred dollars, lower lower than what Google sells, uh, the Nexus Five, which is a great phone, my, still my favorite Android phone. Yeah, I have no thoughts on the OnePlus One. It's aggressive. I know it's not going to c- compel you, but there are a lot of people out there who are looking to buy new Android phones who are very very excited about it. I take that yawn t- t- as a sign that we should move on. Uh, more Google stuff. Uh, this, I think, is something that um, Will and Dave did talk about last week. But uh, Google has a, released a standalone uh, camera app for Android. There wasn't a camera app? There was a camera app, but it wasn't standalone. As in, as in it was something that was built in Android. You could not download it oh. separately in the Google Play Store, just like you can't download Apple's yeah. camera app uh, from the iTunes Store. So they made like a pro app or something like that? It's not a pro app. It's it's part of uh, there are two, two reasons for this. One, they want to increasingly um, split off the core Android apps from Android release, so you're not getting updates only with the the full Android release. So, for example, Google Maps or yep. Gmail, stuff like that. Um, a lot of OEMs they don't release, they don't update their their version of Android because they need to take time to to modify. Uh, but people using those phones want to use Gmail and camera and maps so google is putting those on google play so that people can can download those and get a better a more stock experience and and develop those independent of the core android release i've hated the google camera app for so long mm-hmm. for as long as i've used android i thought it's it's been crappy um it was a confusing UI to me, but I never took the time to learn it. The radio UI menu, the, the tap the screen yeah, and yeah, then yeah. To, to move it, it was levels, yeah, very, yeah. very clunky. Uh, this gets rid of that. It simplifies the app, uh, the, the, the shooting experience all the way down, but it also removes a bunch of stuff. For example, exposure compensation, which uh, you can't do on the iPhone yet, but on a lot of Android phones, you can you know, stop your exposure, intentionally darken your photos or brighten your photos. Mm. Um, adjust, basically, that's the way they adjust the shutter speed. But there's got to be a myriad of third-party there are, and there are, yes, Android camera yes, apps. So yes. what makes this? Why do they do this? Because um, it is, it's a stock one. This is going forward. Oh, the, this is the new camera This app. is the new camera app. Oh, the I new see. Stock camera I see, app, okay. Um, for, for Android. Um, they got rid of white balance stuff. That's, I mean, some people care about that, some people won't. But they also introduced a new feature, which uh, you might find interesting. Yeah. It is the, the fake depth of field uh, <laughs> feature. Yes. Yes. So uh, I thought it was really clever the way they do, did it. And there was this uh, Google research blog post detailing all the algorithms and, and all the technical ways they, they achieved fake depth of field. So let me explain how it works. Well, by depth of field, you mean... Shallow depth of field. Yeah, but, yes. but, but okay. for listeners that maybe don't right. shoot, so, what, yes. what does that mean? So um, when, you, uh, when, when you shoot a, a photo with, uh, let's say, a DSLR or a camera that you can switch out the lens, um, you can buy a lens that's a wide aperture lens. So more expensive, um, it lets more light in. So the aperture is the physical hole that the light passes through to get to the... the uh, the uh, the sensor, and as you open that hole up, 
more light goes through and a byproduct of more light coming through. And it's more difficult to open that aperture up and also compensate for the lens, the fractions and stuff like that. But as a byproduct, uh, you can narrow your depth of field. You can say the plane in which the subject, whether it's a flower, a person, a car is sharp in focus, in focus is slimmer. It's a, so everything behind it is out of focus mm. and everything in front of it is out of focus. And those things in the back or the for- background, far background or far foreground are blurred. And that blurring effect, that, that soft, like buttery blurring effect is called bokeh. Um, that, that's just a, a Japanese term for it. So you're supposed to need a big aperture to make that happen. Yes. F- phones don't have big apertures. No, they don't. So- uh, well, well, phones, I mean, the number of the aperture can, can say oh like the iphone i think is a as a 2.2 or something mm. um it corresponds to sensor size also so while the phone can technically open right. up to that relative size mm-hmm. because the the sensor is so small you don't get that blurring nice bokeh effect and that's something you're not going to change on a phone i mean you're not going to put a giant lens on the phone or phones don't have massive physical sensors they're they're small pieces of silicon that um tightly packed in the pixels are small so software can fix this is what google is saying and um when i show that htc1 phone to you a couple uh, weeks ago uh the htc1 has with the the awesome uh case right with the 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 dot view case your uh, light bright case yep uh the htc1 has two cameras on the back so uh it takes a primary photo and it takes a secondary photo at the exact same time from a slightly different perspective, one inch off the side, which is just enough to be at a different angle, mm-hmm. where the different perspectives of your subject, if it's a, a subject that's close or far away, it obviously works. There's an optimal range for a subject, like about like five feet. If it's too far away, then it's going to look exactly the same, like if you're taking a landscape picture. Um, but if it's a subject that's you know several feet away from me, the shift in perspectives gives the camera enough information to, to distinguish what is the background and what's the foreground. Oh, because they're parallaxes. Because the of the parallax. In, the things in the background would parallax further. Yes. That's it would be slightly askew. Yeah. Because the camera, it's math. It's Pythagoras. The other way around, I guess. The things in the foreground would shift further. Right. It's, it's a Pythagorean theorem, basically. It's saying that, oh, um, I know that, you know, the, I, the camera knows that the lenses are an inch apart. It yeah. knows approximately how far away the foreground, thinks the foreground subject is. Mm-hmm. So in the back, it must say, oh, the background, that must be the background because it's off-center That's interesting. by this much. And using that information, uh, the HTC One phone can apply effects. So oh. it can do that parallax 3D thing. Mm-hmm. It, can, um, it can apply filter effects just to the background. And it can also do a defocusing um, ability where it blurs the background. It simulates the bokeh. The the wide aperture. When I uh, saw that that was a feature, I just assumed that it was done with one lens and that there was some sort of strange filter that just did a decent job of sort of isolating an area of the picture, you know? Like, right, the, the isolation is a tough part. Right, And but when I saw your photo of Joey, I thought, well, that looks pretty good. Right, so that photo was actually, yeah, that was with uh, the HTC One. Um, so, so, I mean, even around somebody's hair, which typically when you're, Trying to isolate the foreground object and background, like hair can be trouble. You get in there and try to so isolate. So they're, they're talking about two, like a couple things going on. Um, one is the uh, the software distinguishing between your subject and the background. Mm-hmm. Two is the software masking. Right. So when you, when I say masking, I mean like drawing an outline, separating, splitting up the layer between the foreground and the background. So imagine if you're in Photoshop and you're trying to cut out 
someone's profile in the foreground and drawing with your your mouse cursor. That's what the software is doing automatically. Right. And three, blending, you know, applying a filter to the back, a blurring filter, and the blurring filter itself has to be pretty good because you can't just say, oh, make that look blurry, and that's not going to look, you know, it's not like smudge no. the colors. And it should blur in degrees. It should. It doesn't. Oh, okay. <laughs> and there's also the blending, which is how you, that transition you talk about, like in hair. Mm-hmm. You know, how do you transition from the sharp part to a blurred part? Is it just like a smudge or is it like there's some actual graceful transition? So, These are problems that people, when they convert movies from 2D movies to 3D movies, have to think about. Oh, God. Right? Yeah. Um, yeah. So but, that's what the HTC one. So wait, so if you stand next to a wall or a, yes. or a fence and you're like right up against it and you, okay. your shot is the fence going off into the horizon mm-hmm. and you take a picture with your camera, with your phone, you're saying that there will be a line at which it becomes blurry. Yes. It's not a, gr- a gradual. It's not. Beca- okay. Yeah. Uh, right now. Yeah. yeah. That's, well, just, I mean, that's um, just the function of the, you know, the current technology. That seems technology. like that'll come. I'm just curious where right. it's at now. Um, so Google, the Nexus 5 and most Google, uh, most Android cameras, uh, phones only have one camera in the back. So how do they get the same effect without having two cameras? And the thing I thought was that's very clever was that they like they make you take a picture and then tell you to move the camera up mm. around your subject. <laughs> so and as and you move your it, camera, another picture. Or I think it it's just, it's taking the information it as it moves as you move the camera up. Yeah, that's smart. And doing the processing, so it's taking it's it's you know using the single camera acting as two, yeah. or more than two, maybe even getting more frames. Exactly, it, yeah. exactly, and and it actually takes much longer on the Google side and the Google app side to process that data mm-hmm. than on the HTC side because the HTC camera knows exactly the distance between those two cameras. Can the HTC do three D photography? No, because it's got the two cameras. It can't do three D photography. There's got to be an app for that. Maybe, maybe. I'm, I'm not exactly. Maybe sure. the uh, cameras aren't that far apart. Um, the effect of the Google thing is it's very hit and miss because if something's in the background that's moving because you're doing it over time, mm-hmm. then like if a car is moving in the background, yeah. it could think that that's in the foreground because it's moving. It's like panorama mode or something exactly. like that. Exactly. You get weird ghosts. Exactly. There's some, there's some weird effects. Um, I'm not sure I feel about it. <laughs> like, like, like the thing you said earlier is that exactly right that it's, it's only going to get better. Mm-hmm. It's only going to get better to a point where you might not be able to approximate physical hardware exa- exactly, but you'll get you know seventy percent there yep. to where the naked eye, where an, an, a, a layman's eye, let's not say the layman's eye, w- is not going to care. Is like, oh that looks like a really pretty picture, mm-hmm. and people have said that about the HTC photos. Like how did you get that photo? That looks amazing. I was yeah. like, oh, it's, it did a trick. It's a trick. Now I'm just thinking, can you choose your focal point? You can. You can tap the back and say the back is in focus. That's cool. But there's only so many layers. Oh, really? It's only like background or foreground. Oh. Yeah. Okay, but that'll, that'll get better. Exactly. That'll, that'll also get better. It's just, that's just taking more data. It just needs more data. Hmm. Right? Need, need more cameras. That ties into uh, our next uh, topic, which is uh, Litro, Litro, which uh, is a camera company um, that was a uh, f- started by a Stanford graduate, Stanford PhD, who uh, wrote this huge dissertation about uh, Stan- light field. You know, by the way, Stanford is the hardest university to get into this year. I think they yeah, have a, every year. <laughs> well, yeah, but I think they they've clearly been near the top. But this year, yeah. at least, they certainly are. It's got this insane rejection rate. Yeah, it's like ninety nine percent. Yeah, yeah, it and, is. And, and and most people, and it also they get a ton of applicants. Well, yeah, clearly, yes, you're. 
uh, too close. Too soon, Jeremy. Too soon. To what? To too what? soon to when I was in college. <laughs> All right. Sorry. I did not go to Stanford. All right. Continue. Um, I did know. Um, Litro. Litro. Uh, they released a camera called the Litro two years ago, which looked like uh, kind of like a mon- monocular. Um, yeah. And it like almost like a kaleidoscope mm-hmm. toy. It wasn't it like a square though. It was it was a square. Yeah, it was like a tube, uh, and you uh, like uh, you look through it, and take, I guess you didn't really look through it because it was LCD. You just point it at your subject and take a picture, and using what the, uh, it's called light field um, technology, uh, it captures all the light information from a scene from every perspective, every depth every focal length and then after the fact combines that in software so you can actually change uh your point of focus there's i am conflicted here because i have found this the physics of this really interesting the physics are fascinating but i i still don't understand it (laughs) Uh, micro lenses is was what they they say i mean there is a lens array but in it's not a traditional like a, like sensor. Like a DLP projector has mirrors, that kind of thing? Is it a bunch of... I mean, how many focal distances are there? I don't think it, it works that way. Shouldn't there be unlimited? It should be, uh, depending on how much light is coming in. It's The way I understand it, and I, I'm not exactly... I, I'm not expert on this. You didn't go to Stanford. No, I didn't. No, absolutely. I didn't write a dissertation on, on this technology. Um the way I understand it is that uh, it's capturing light rays as opposed to pixels, as opposed to pixel information. So where right, right. On, a, on a normal camera, a digital sensor, it is a, a, a grid of pixels mm-hmm. that are, you think of as buckets. And light information light comes in the buckets, and the buckets are these photodiode sensors that interpret that light and say, okay, this is a certain color at a certain intensity. And then it saves that in a JPEG or a raw image. Um, and my understanding is that, that there is no sensor like that in yeah. the virtual camera. It's that so it, it it's taking the 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 information they're taking is the the right the raw light it rays. It sounds like reverse ray tracing or something like that. You know, it's I, I would I, love to get my wrap my head around. Yeah, this. I, I'd love to speak to someone to ex- explain it. C- come on the show and explain to us. Uh, anyway, they released their second ca- or they announced their second camera called the Ilum, which looks more like a tra- traditional camera. With a big lens. I felt like the first one, while well, the technology was really cool, and yeah. there's websites where you can actually play with it. Well, you can only play it with websites because you're not going to print it out and tap a photo. <laughs> no, that's a good point. That's a good point. So, but um, I thought that the photos, even once they resolved, yeah. they, they looked like digital photos. They didn't look that great. They didn't look that great. Kind of the, the quote-unquote resolution, the equ- resolution equivalent, pixel resolution equivalent of these photos is relatively low. Yes. So this new camera kind of solved that. No, I don't. It is there are more of these micro lenses, so they have four times as many yeah. of them, uh, as much data. It's still a matter of how that software is interpreting that data, which they're still improving. Which is inter- interesting because that means you can take the data and as their algorithms and as that software gets better, the photos you're able to develop with that data, as long as you save that information, will be better. Which is cool. Is that right? Yes. Wow. Yeah. That is. Is that cool? Yeah. I and their whole thing is. They want the, the can they want to build a camera that captures data and in its purest form. Yeah. Light data. And their their business is the software, is the algorithm to manipulate that in really cool ways. So you're you don't think that the photos currently coming out of the new camera 
look um well, what what are you saying i'm saying that like if you if you embed them on a website they look fine i'm saying that if yeah. you wanted to put them out on a on Be- an 8x10 better than the first one better than the first one not as good as an SLR not as good as an SLR all right it's a $1600 camera um, $1,600? $1,600 That's not camera. cheap. Is That's it interchangeable that. lenses? No. Yeah. Why would you... I guess you wouldn't... Is it a zoom lens? It's a zoom lens. Okay. Yeah. That's all you need then. Yeah. 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 Weird. Um, so so but, but these things all tie together. The Litro, the Google, new Google app, the HTC One. The idea that software can solve the problems, the constraints of hardware. Maybe not replace well, the hardware. You mean like the constraints of physics? Constraints of the physical constraints. Like you're not you're not going to be able to put a giant right. sensor on this on a phone. Yeah, you're not going to be able to put a giant lens on the phone and have it be practical. Try as some phone companies might, but the software can help make up for that with clever tricks. Yes, and for the consumer, for someone who's just looking at wanting to browse photos on Instagram, they might not care. Yeah, I mean, the cell phone has already replaced the point-and-shoot for a lot of people. And the cell phone, the, 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 the idea of filters and artificially using software to simulate physical analog effects, that's pervasive. Yep. You, you, the idea of um, vignetting, putting a vignette around a photo, that is completely artificial in software. And that's, that's something that only happens in a real photo because of a wide-angle lens and because of the lens being bigger than the sensor. Right. Um, but they, people like the effect because it evokes the sense of, you know, there's something about it that's either uh, nostalgic or a sense memory or just aesthetically pleasing. Um, and I don't know if you use Instagram. In Instagram, you know, you have your, your uh, uh, tilt shift kind of blurring filter. It's the exact same concept. It's just the Google and the HTC, they're just getting smarter about it. Yeah. And it's, it's a... It's an interesting slippery slope. Some people, yeah, exactly. There are people who are divided on this and go the other route, and they have, yeah. you know, there's strictly no filter. And there's right. the no filter right. plan that. I mean, Lightroom lets you add film you know, grain. Anyone who's added, you can watch a movie, a, digi- a movie shot digitally in a theater, and you can, you know, if you scrutinize it, you can realize it was watched digitally, but they're adding so many, just in the post processing. Film and, elements. Yeah, yeah, film elements. Film, fake film grain <laughs> um, to hide the fact that, you know, low yep. light. Resolution isn't great. Res- resolving um, uh, the shadows aren't great. Mm. Yeah, so it it happens all the time. I mean, the digital digital intermediate process is something that is part of video and, and imaging as a whole. It'll be interesting to see how long there are holdouts for the real old analog methods when there are these digital methods those aren't going to go away no clearly there's still people shooting film but the movement is towards digital yes and i i think eventually you're you're not going to have film i mean eventually maybe not even in our lifetime but eventually and i bet the same goes for people are still painting these analog techniques too. people are still painting well yeah that's a that's not going away yeah well that's more tangible I, so some would say that the analog process is more tangible <laughs> in that exact same way, the, the physical developing of film. Um, I think finding the compromise between digital imaging and digital, uh, digital hardware and digital software and the application of software is going to be is something we're still figuring out right now. Yeah. And I think the slippery slope isn't in how fast we incorporate digital software, is but where the standards lie for where the software is going to be good enough. Well, yeah. So I would consumers be, will decide exactly, and I, I, that's where that's my fear: letting the consumers decide, <laughs> not to be a snob about it. Um, 
Google put a glass uh, on sale for one day last week. Really? What day? Uh, Monday, I believe. Um, I want to say it was Monday. 421. No. The yeah. week before that. Oh, maybe, oh I see. Maybe. Right. Uh, sold out. Immediately, what they made available. Turns out people are still really intrigued uh, and want to spend $1,500 on Google Glass. Wait, I thought it was on sale. Oh, I'm sorry. On, on, publicly on sale. Like, they didn't drop the price. They didn't drop the price. <laughs> I'm just saying they let anyone buy it without a beta invite. <laughs> wow. How kind of them. Thank you, sir. Thank you. <laughs> and they sold out. Oh, my God. Yes. Yes. I'll, I'll take it. <laughs> um, you are one of the, uh, the biggest early adopters. You back Kickstarter not projects. Of, not of Glass. But, but I, not of Glass. I, I'm of, generally an early adopter. Yeah, yes. And I love the idea of Glass when I first saw the concepts and people assumed that it would be augmented reality and you'd be able to project images in front of your vision. Right. It ended up being a tiny little screen in the corner. And, uh, you know, it was a, an, a good ca- an interesting first-person camera. Right. Right. And I didn't, I didn't necessarily need that in my life. Plus, it makes people feel strange. Not the wearer, although I imagine they feel strange too, but everyone who's being observed and recorded in their vicinity. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, Will bought glass last year. Yeah. Neither of us have worn glass in the past four months. It tells you, I think Will also got the, uh, the physical glasses attachment accessory with uh, yeah. the frames. Mm-hmm. Nope. Yeah, not wearing glass. I mean, I could, I would be all over an augmented reality goggle that you know that looked like sunglasses that I that truly could make the world my play space and mm-hmm. it, it turn it into a game space or, you know, uh, I guess the evolution of Google Glass essentially. I would I would submit to Google and wear a camera on my head if it meant. Better augmented reality. So I'm just waiting. Why can't me. Oculus do that? Yeah, the, the, the people have hooked up cameras, yeah. like duct tape and, cameras. And that will it. only get smaller. Yeah. So it's, it's, it will converge. I've wondered if like that's their Endgame? ace card for the uh, for the uh, consumer version. But there, there is that USB port. Wishful thinking. Yeah, there is that then. on the front. Yep. Yeah. Although I I wouldn't want to. S- the, the promise of augmented reality is that it's overlay, and with Oculus, if it's still covering your entire field of view, and you're getting you're you're seeing the digital signal as opposed to an optical overlay, uh, I, I could not do with that. It's, it's the same reason why I don't I can't use a digital viewfinder on a camera. I find a digital image unacceptable compared to optical, the resolution of the real world. Yeah, it'll be a compromise. Yeah, I mean, as as low latency as you could put make it, it's still pixels versus light. Yep. Yeah, but it's like, you know, would you rather have a heart or would you rather have Iron Man's thing? You know? <laughs> <laughs> well, I, know what, I know what kids across America are going to say. <laughs> yeah. Iron Man's thing, take the heart out. <laughs> Give me the shrapnel. <laughs> Give me the magnets. The electro-permanent magnets. That's what Iron Man has. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, that's, that's what his, uh, the, the, the arc reactor basically is. Um. Have you seen uh, this uh, new Chrome extension, Project Naptha? Uh, Naptha. Where I do I know that word? Coffee. I know that word from something. What's is what's Naptha? Uh, the word or this this project in sure. particular? Well, what's the project? The, the project is um, it's a browser extension 
that does real-time OCRing of images. Uh, yeah, okay. Well, I've seen like an iPhone app that will do real-time translation. Word Lens. Word lens. Is that yeah, Word Lens. And Word you hold lens. it up to a... It's very, very, very... Po- Make Me Spanish was the famous sign. Norm meme that came out of that. Make Me Spanish. <laughs> yeah, you could translate Spanish in English. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, this extension is really cool. Is it the same kind of thing? Very similar. So it scans... It, it does... Ostensibly, what it does is uh, it looks for images and looks for text and images. And when you highlight the text and image, you can copy and paste that text. So if it's text embedded in an image macro, like a meme, mm-hmm. like a like advice animal meme, mm-hmm. you can copy that text and paste it as text in a Word document or in a Notepad document from from an image, which I think is cool. Yeah, definitely. The cooler technology, and it taps into some OCR, some open source OCR. Does it work with uh, PDFs that are works with locked? works with? Uh, I believe it works with PDFs. That would be handy. Um, the cool thing is uh, OCR is very computationally intensive. Like you can't, it's not reasonable for that extension to be taking up cloud processing or your uploading, you know, images every web page you're on to scan to scan the cloud or processing it locally so that you could highlight the text mm-hmm. right there's privacy concerns it's memory concerns right um ocring traditionally when you're telling you know your your scanner please ocr this page of text it takes some time mm-hmm. um and you're actively telling that uh, so it's the predictive ocr technology is a really cool thing where it, it's following your cursor and anticipates the cursor movement it knows when your cursor is one above an image mm-hmm and two, it knows what direction you're heading in. And as you're heading toward that part of the image, it scans that part. And you can highlight, but it doesn't actually, what it recognizes as text, it's not actually processing the actual text until you click copy. So it's hiding all the things, all, all, the, all the processor-intensive tasks of OCR and t- text in real time instantaneously mm-hmm. in background with predictive algorithms. Okay. It's very cool. Have you used it? Oh, yeah. I have it installed right now. It's very... I mean, you, anyone can download it. Project Napta works in Chrome. Like, this right now is an image where if I drag it, it's an image. Yep. But if I wanted to, I can highlight text. Oh, that's magical. <laughs> that, isn't it? <laughs> you, you, you were so unimpressed until you saw the demo. Well, when you see it highlight as if, highlight the, browser, as if it's, the browser thinks it's text. It's exactly. not like you right-click and copy the whole text. No. You, you can select. You copy exactly what text you want. And like WordLens will translate, <laughs> you can copy text and say translate, and it will translate in place and replace that text in place. Oh, wow. Or you can even erase the text behind the image and it'll use uh, content aware filling can you sell google extensions how are they making money you can you can buy uh i think i believe you can buy apps chrome apps oh. um i've not bought a single chrome app to let you know i don't use a chromebook um but yeah i think that's that's it's really really cool yeah definitely it's free try it out projectnapta.com is the website um just a, a little bit there uh, Ars Technica had a fantastic story uh, written by um, their game guy, Kyle Orland, um, which brought to mind uh, Alexis Madrigal's Atlantic story from uh, earlier this year about um, pulling the secret databases of services. Um, you hadn't heard about this before. 
Nope. So the Atlantic's uh, senior tech technology editor, Alexis Madrigal, uh, realized uh, that when he was browsing Netflix and clicking on the categories. So when you use Netflix, you can scroll and say, they'll have very customized categories for you. They'll say, Jeremy, you like adventure-filled animation films for kids starring John Lithgow. Something like that. Yeah. Right? Shrek. That's, that's the movie I was, I was thinking of. Um, and he noticed when he clicked these categories or he looked, looked in them, uh, these micro genres, as he called them, uh, each had a unique uh, tag, number, numerical tag, and they were linear, uh, the sequence. And so with some light coding um, and some Amazon uh, server space, server time, some, uh, some EC2 or uh, S3, whichever is the, not the storage, but the processing, um, he indexed every single category on Netflix and put it in an Excel, an Excel document. And at that time, as of January 2014, Netflix had 76,000 micro-genres. That's pretty, that's pretty awesome. And, yes. then, and I assume that these are like uh, Amazon labels where one movie can be in multiple. So oh, absolutely. Yeah. The buckets. Yeah, buckets. Um, and and it's almost like a mad lib of, of uh, how these genres are created. Like genres could be, you know, and, and they actually there's a really cool, um, uh, you could say, you know, like there, there, there are segments of the genres. You could say action documentary featuring John Lemon set in the 70s. Mm-hmm. Like they could be stacked on top of each other. What did Netflix say about this breach of their uh, privacy? I think they're they okay with it. Scraping that data, they were totally okay. They All didn't right. comment on on how they create those genres, but there's a lot of, you know, studying and analyzing that data allowed uh, the, the writer to, um, to come to some conclusions about how they, how they create the genres and, and, um, and how, how, how they, how some, why some actors have are in more movies than others are more genres, have their own genre specific uh, categories than others. Mm-hmm. Um, Ars Technica did the same thing, but with Steam. Mm. They realized that uh, user data, uh, the user profiles, your Steam, every user of Steam has a unique, uh, if you're not marked private, has a unique profile ID. And while they didn't scan all the millions of people that are on Steam, they used statistics and pulled a random sample and extrapolated data based on that. And just some quick conclusions, they can say that, you know, Steam users have put an aggregate 3.8 billion hours in the Dota 2. They Steam users tend to put nearly 600% more time into multiplayer mode in Call of Duty than single player mode. They can tell you the games that are bought the most but played the least. Um, so this is all very valuable information. Very, very valuable information. Um, for for developer standpoint, from publisher standpoint, well, that sounds more valuable than even the Netflix stuff. Yes. I mean, that that stuff that the yeah, that this Valve is the actual user playtime could potentially sell back to publishers. And yes, absolutely. But it's apparently, I mean, and and while this data, there's a margin of error because they didn't sample everyone, and they sure. laid out their their techniques. Statistically, it's close enough. And they extrapolated that. What do you think is the most owned game on Steam right now? Um, Team Fortress Two. That is the second most owned with 20 million 
owners. I'm going to still congratulate myself because that's pretty close. That is that is really close. The most owned would have to be Portal Two. Ah, uh, I'm going backwards. <laughs> what is it? Dota Two. Ah, I should have guessed. Twenty six million users own Dota Two. Wait, and what's what's TF Two? Twenty. Oh wow. Yeah. Oh. And then if you go down the top ten, it's mostly, it's it's almost all Valve games. Dota 2, Team Fortress 2, Half-Life 2, Lost Coast, Counter-Strike Source, Half-Life 2, Deathmatch. A lot of these are games that people got for free, that Valve offered for free in the early days of Steam. Do you remember Ricochet? Like, stuff like that. Yeah. Owned by a lot of people, played by very little people. <laughs> uh, don't underestimate the little people. They're good at games. Yes, yes. Uh, yeah, Day of Defeat, Deathmatch Classic. Do you remember Deathmatch Classic? That was such a... What's Day of Defeat again? Is that the World War Two one? It was. Oh, yeah. that was a good game. That's fantastic. It's been. It was. It's in source. It's. It's. It looks great. Still plays great. Yeah. You're, you're thinking back to PC gamer. I, I can see the nostalgia flowing through your brain. I've been. Right now. I've been thinking about playing through Portal Two again. That's a fantastic game. Yeah. Does it support the Rift? I don't know. Yeah. I don't know about that. But yeah, uh, read the stories on Ars Technica. Um, fantastic job. Excellent piece of. Uh, reporting and uh, just fascinating all around. <clears throat> I'm so out of touch. I have never even played Dota one or two. I the, the most po- I mean PC gaming right now is all about mobas. The yeah the most popular games on in PC gaming. I mean Civ five is extremely popular. There are some games that really that have long legs. Um, but Dota far and away. League of Legends, League of Legends far and away. Then Dota is League um, of Legends the same style of game? Yes. Huh. Yes, MOBAs. Yeah, hmm. if you go to any any these comp- like StarCraft is a distant, distant fifth or sixth. I don't know. Mm-hmm. I'm, I'm throwing numbers out there, but it's not not RTS is not nearly uh, what they were, and not carrying the genre or shooters. Shooters are on consoles now. I mean, there are shooters on PC, but it's most most uh, people playing games on PC, MOBAs and Minecraft. Well, TF2 is right there. As in people owning I don't know how many people are actually playing. Oh, I think a lot of people play it. I think a lot of people play it, too. It's not where the money is, really. No. Hats. Hats on, hats on MOBA characters. You can't do that. Can you? I, I, I don't know. I don't play them. <laughs> okay. Yeah, I think you can. You can buy clothes and stuff for them. Skins. Um, so we... Uh, stuff on the site, we reviewed the uh, Fire TV... Um, reviewed the uh, the HTC One, the new HTC One. You can see all that stuff on the site right now. Amazon Prime is getting HBO. They locked in an exclusive multi-year deal. That's that's exciting because I don't have cable and mm-hmm. I want HBO yes. so badly. But you and want do you want new HBO? I want new HBO. You're and They're not going to have it. No. It's all the old stuff. Yeah. But then again, I haven't seen the old stuff either. So I think that there's su- HBO is such a great library. HBO Go has done so much f- to open up the old library of just comedy specials mm-hmm. for HBO that previously, yes, you could still watch it on your, your cable box, but the navigation system was so terrible. Mm. Um, so that's a Boardwalk Empire, um, Mad Men, or not Mad Men, that's AMC. Um, Boardwalk, I mean, new shows will be on, uh, on Amazon Prime three years after they originally are quote-unquote broadcast because they're not really broadcast. Is that their deal? They've already thought that far ahead? Three years. Oh, my God. So Girls, Veep. Newsroom three years after, but no Game of Thrones, no Sex in the City. Sorry, <laughs> sorry, Jeremy. Ah, sorry. 
You can watch The Wire all day long. Yeah, I heard that was great. I watched it, it I watched great. a few episodes of that. Uh, May 2nd, I believe, is when that stuff will get unlocked on Amazon Prime, making Amazon Prime that much more valuable if you don't pay for cable. It certainly is. Yeah. Uh, speaking of HBO shows, you have seen the first episode of Silicon Valley. Yeah, yeah. yeah. What I did you think about it? Twice, actually. I watched it with my wife the second time. What uh, did she think about it? Uh, she hated it. She, ah! she hated it. And that's probably why I haven't gone back, because it's tainted my opinion of it. But I liked it. What does she not like about it? Uh, she just thought it was stupid. Uh, she, <laughs> it was, you know, just a bunch of guys, a bunch of just... She didn't get the script. She got none of the jokes. Oh. She's not into tech. Okay, so it wasn't that she thought it was... It was not her... It, she was not the target audience. Okay. Um, Would you say you're the target, target audience? Yes. Okay. And I liked it. Um, it wasn't the the love... It wasn't the level of affection i have for office space but or other mike judge yeah, projects or even yeah but i have to think back on when i first saw office space i didn't like it as much as i do now then you know it kind of grew on me and every time i watch office space i like it even more and i've watched it countless times but whereas i think probably silicon valley is going to have that same effect plus it's drawn out over a longer arc yeah. i'm re- i'm curious to see what happens uh with the team i i thought the setup was good but the jokes were great i thought the arc the arc they set up is fantastic. The idea and the, the jokes they make, the in-jokes about how expensive it is and how, what a shithole Palo Alto is to live in. Yeah. And uh, they're the... These the guys weird. are all like this. They're always consumer-facing. Yes, but if we made it business-facing, turned it to enterprise, and they're just throwing out all the stupid lingo that everyone just uses in normal speech yes. around here, yes. but they're making fun of it. And I yeah. love that someone's finally doing that. It's very, it's very interesting because... You and I, and you know, tested audience, we're so connected to this in- industry that it's tough for us to view it through the lens of someone who just enjoys HBO. And I'm curious what they think of it. It's already been renewed for a second season, I believe. Oh yeah, yeah. The one thing I didn't like was that I thought some of the characterizations were too stereotypical. You have the awkward Indian dude. It's not as bad as like Big Bang Theory, <laughs> but it it they are caricatures yeah. to some extent. Mm-hmm. And well, I hope yeah. that the characters come into their own as uh, you know as having more depth than their caricature. I do too. But I thought the premise is fantastic, mm-hmm. and and the fact that they you know it's a startup they're going through the 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 uh, uh, the incubator program that kind of stuff. Yeah, I think it's it's neat. It's it's, it's good that show. And the op- opening sequence is fantastic. He found a way to search through compressed data. <laughs> Holy shit! It's good stuff. Uh, you're also watching Cosmos. Love Cosmos. My family's my, we're we're total nerds. We do Cosmos and cookies. Cosmos and cookies. <laughs> Dream parties every week. Wow. So we sit down, which is great. I love that my seven year old uh, son enjoys it. So yeah. that's like success. But um, my four year old daughter is a little hard to keep keep quiet during the show but but he's traveling through space on a spaceship of imagination i like it's great i'm i'm totally open to that i mean it, they it's i know a lot of people have critiqued it for being a science fiction show about science yes. and it, it's, they kind of confuse the the mechanic the like the vehicle of the space uh, the spaceship of imagination with uh you know something that's supposed to reflect reality but anyway it, it's i think it's great it you made a point on one of your podcasts about how it is, uh, as I recall, you said that it was strangely like um, anti-religion. I wouldn't say it's strangely anti-religion. Um, I would say that given the time constraints they have on the show, they present the facts so staunchly 
that I would love to have seen more like of the showing the the, the research stuff. It just presented. Oh, okay. Fact wise. Okay. Which I, is, I mean, they are facts. They are scientific facts. But I could see the you know just, just to play the devil's advocate. Like I wanted to see more of the more of the how the science behind how how these things were re- reached. It, it's an overview. And yeah. That's what the show is. Mm-hmm. It's, it's a really good, really fantastic overview, and it is targeted to people like your son. You know, it's exactly the kind of thing that you yeah. see in schools. I remember seeing shows like that in schools, and took these things as fact. And it was only until later that I realized, understood how those facts and how the uh, research came to be. And I hope it does the same. Maybe I projected my own uh, thoughts on, onto yours because I, I feel like every episode um, sort of is almost framed, at least, especially episode two. But I feel like it's in every episode somewhere where it's framed as um, religion is what is wrong and science is right. Hmm. Where, whereas I, I don't remember all of the science documentaries that I saw growing up framing it that way. Um, it was more like this is science and it's obvious this is right. right. It's not like like the old beliefs are... The, the old beliefs, science as a way to secure the old beliefs right. is, is the framing. And I, the one, there's one example, I'm not sure which episode it was, but they're talking about the um, uh, Halley's Comet. In mm-hmm. comets in general, and the episode is framed with in the past, you know, comets were very mysterious, and we imbued upon them spiritual and fantastical you mean, you know, meaning. Meaning, yeah. yeah. Um, and it wasn't, and how bold of scientists and how wonderful the champions of science were to challenge these, you know, the the the, uh, the prophets. Yeah. Um, and yeah, so in that in that sense, yes, absolutely. Um, but it, it's good storytelling. Oh, it's great! Fantastic story. No, it's great, and I yeah. love that there's a show like this. Yeah, you know, I mean, I there's um, a guy named James Burke who did this uh, these old series called Connections. There's Connections one, two, and three on the Learning Channel, and in the '80s there was one called The Day the Universe Changed, and not to mention the original Cosmos. I mean, any shows like that, I, I've always seeked out and just loved loved watching because there's so much that I have I'm clueless about mm. basic stuff. Like the uh, and you can always use a refresher <laughs> for the thing, yeah, for the little that I do know. Absolutely, good show, very good show. Uh, Seth MacFarlane, good for him. Yeah, good. do you know? He, I mean, he not only brought the Cosmos show um, back on TV and produced it, and you know, helped spend the money to do it, um, but he also helped archive all of uh, Carl Sagan's writings. Oh, I didn't know that. Um, in I'm not sure if it's Library of Congress, but it might be. Yeah, so they're all preserved now. Mm-hmm. You can you can go through them and index them, and and it's it's wonderful. And it's I think it's like the Seth MacFarlane archive of the Carl Sagan and and his wife and stuff like that. Yeah, look it up. Best thing Seth MacFarlane ever did, as far as I'm concerned. Hmm. I am not a fan of Family Guy. <laughs> <laughs> way, way to alienate all of our audience oh come on no, there's gotta there's be some gotta be, intelligent people out there who don't like family guy <laughs> well you could have just stop the intelligent people out there <laughs> well i know there's intelligent people out there um you got your phantom quadcopter i'm jumping straight to what we're testing no no musical interlude we're keeping it all right straight to play great, let's do it because i gotta return a phone call um i love my phantom 2 vision plus <laughs> it's really they keep adding these things yeah I, oh dude i love it it's so cool we talked about before like i i, I knew that it was this combination of f- rc flight and photography which are two things i'm interested in yes and it combines them 
but man, there's so much that I that I just wasn't prepared for. Like the uh, when the my the sequence of of how I enjoyed it went kind of counterintuitive. Where I I initially was learning the controls, which is to be expected. Mm-hmm. But then I'm flying this amazing quadcopter, but all I thought about for the first few flights was the shot. Yes. Oh, yes. So, like, I'm thinking yeah. about, like, what would look cool, and, and let me fly yeah. over myself, and let me get a rising shot of the yeah. tree and, like, fly through some branches. And it wasn't until, like, my fifth flight where I was like, wait a minute, I could have fun just flying. And that's when I really opened it up and just full throttled and just flew around the place. And that is so fun. You know, so the, and then, like, the video of that looked great, too. <laughs> <laughs> so it, it, wasn't, it wasn't like I was even thinking about the shot at that point. I was just yeah. enjoying the, the sense of this of flying. Yeah. And it flies really fast. And it's then there's this element of danger because it's it's a very dangerous device. I mean the, these propellers are moving I don't how heavy would you say it is, like five pounds? It's uh, three and a half three and a half, four pounds. So it's like this four pound mechanical object that's and the propellers are, fl- are propelling so so fast to lift that into the air and fly it really at high speed that it's, it's a whirling blades of death on four parts of this object, and they're flying around, and, you, and there's nothing keeping you from flying that right into a, somebody or into the, a car or yourself. If you're tr- Skill, good sense. Well, yes, yes, that's all that's keeping you. And the people, there's no measure, there's no license required <laughs> to fly these things, so skill is not required. And... So I took my family out, and um, they were rightfully a little bit terrified by the thing. Oh. You know, my son has been hit by one of the minis, the indoor oh. the I'm sorry. I say that passively. I hit him <laughs> with, with, with the indoor mini. <laughs> Your son got hit. So he I was <laughs> I was flying my copter, and then my son right hurt himself. So <laughs> so and his sister saw that happen. So they were both aware that this is dangerous. Now this one's much bigger, and and my, but my wife was not prepared for the sound. Oh, the sound this thing makes is the, the bees, terrifying. The it's yeah. terrifying. So I mean, it's, there's nothing about this thing that isn't dreadful. I mean, if you you can see the future to this thing that you can like put it somewhere and face you, face somebody else, and put the controller down, and it will just continue facing them yeah. as if it's got a brain of its own. Like the wind comes, it will compensate for that. It won't rotate. It will just point a camera at somebody. But man. The future is terrifying. Exciting. <laughs> what you mean is exciting. Uh, yeah, it is exciting. At, and do I, you look at maps differently? Like, do you look at landscapes differently when you're driving or walking somewhere in the city? And like, oh, that would be a really cool place. I wonder what it looks like. Yes. I'm oh, absolutely. Uh, yeah, I'm, I'm nonstop thinking about things. And even now, the places I've flown, I think about differently. I have a better sense of the topography, mm-hmm. the curvature of the streets, mm-hmm. and like, like what, where I am and what's around me. It's a uh, it's and the video footage is awe inspiring. When you fly up to even just four hundred feet, yeah, thing can go a thousand feet. But if you fly four hundred feet and pan around the city, uh, the video I've shown to people, they're just like, "Wow, that's amazing." I mean, it, the fact that any that somebody can do this now with uh, something that you can buy on Amazon. I mean, uh, ten years ago, it was amazing to hook a, a camera, like a point and shoot, up to a kite. You know, and fly it, <laughs> and fly it up. It's very, it's very, uh, it's very uh, Ben Franklin. Yeah. So I mean, it's it's super cool. Um, I have broken one propeller. Oh, you did? How that happened? I think it was this um, the vortex of doom. Okay, so explain the vortex of doom. Let's be a conversation <laughs> about it. And I think I think I'm right about what this effect is. Yeah, yeah. Um, well, if 
this is not this is a problem with all copters quadcopters included phantom 2 included so there's helicopters also yeah yeah so there's there's threads on this um it's i forget what it's called but it's the vortex of something and i like doom if you come straight down if you try if you're hovering and you come straight down the propellers are propelling air downward so hard that there's eventually there's little pockets where there's no air yeah there's nothing there that can be propelled and so the the copter falls there and with the quadcopters, they start to wobble because there's this oscillating um, lack of air on either side. And it tries to compensate for that itself, and it can't, and it just, it, you can let go of the control or even try to throttle up, and it won't, it just keeps falling. And this happened to me during my first flight. And it was terrifying because I was in the, a baseball field, and until then, I thought I, I could rely on it to stay in the air. Thankfully, I wasn't above anybody. If I had been above somebody, like that's what that's what freaked me out. I can lose the copter, but if I land on a kid, that's bad. That's bad news. And of course, that's bad news for the kid. That's bad news for me. But that's bad news for this hobby. <laughs> I think it's off the hobby. So don't be a martyr. <laughs> so um, I, I thankfully the internet's full of advice. The solution is to descend at an angle. So go forward or laterally or backwards even, and descend Slow, just, just that a little way. Bit. Hmm? Descent, just, you, know, you just need a little bit, just, just a very slight vector yeah, yeah. approach. Yeah, as long as you're moving, as long as you're over top of new air right. as, as you're descending, then uh, you'll be all right. And I, as I, I found, that works fine. These don't work in space. <laughs> no, exactly. Yeah. Oh, what I want to do is fly it in like colored powdered fog or something. <laughs> <laughs> okay. I want to see the what? Yeah, the jet streams. I want to see like the, the oh, the, the, I see the, what the you fluid mean. dynamics. I thought you wanted like that would be an interesting shot. No, no, the fluid dynamics of the air. Yeah, with slow mo camera or something. Yes. Yeah, it's a good idea. Yeah, yeah, I like this. Let's do it. I mean, all you gotta do is get a fog machine with colored fog. Yeah. Fill it in a gymnasium. Mm-hmm. And it's kind of fly it over. <laughs> Sounds cheap and easy. Let's do it. All right. Something to look forward to. Yeah. Uh, Thank yep. you so much, Jeremy, for coming in today. Oh, you're welcome. Uh, on on this day, on this uh, on this quiet Thursday, just so we can f- have a podcast. Uh, Thank you for inviting me. Uh, Will's out this week. Uh, he'll be back next <laughs> week. We're unfortunately not going to be at SCAA. Uh, we we're planning on going. Um, What's that? That's the uh, Specialty Coffee Association of America, the event annual coffee convention. We've been to several times. I think like three times now, twice or three times, but um. Not going this year. We we're planning on doing that. But we will plan more coffee coverage on the site. I know people have been asking for it. There's new technology and new products for Will to review. So he's going to try to get some of that stuff in um, to review. Uh, at WonderCon, again, check out check out the photos I took. Let me know which ones are your favorites in the comments below. Maybe I'll put a link in the description for YouTube. Um, and I found some really cool kits. At, uh, at WonderCon, yeah, some, so we'll do some show and tells for some nice. some kits to build. Something I think that I'll show you after the podcast, Jeremy, because I think you and your kids might enjoy them. Sweet as well, kits like kits like that stuff. Um, so that'll do it for us this week. Sorry, not taking questions this weekend. I'm, I'm not properly set up, and I'm still actually recovering from a little bit of a cold and a sore throat. But the podcast must go on. Thanks to you guys. I'm gonna play the outro music, which I believe is the same one I had queued up last time. And uh, we'll see you guys next week. Hi there, I didn't see you.
Well, that's dated. <laughs> that's it.